Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher Sagers, Professor of Law at the Cleveland State University Cleveland Marshall College of Law. We will discuss his new book, United States v. Apple, Competition in America, which will be published by Harvard University Press. So welcome to the program, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. So I, I got to say, um, I was so happy when you came to UK to talk about your book, which admittedly I hadn't read at the time, and I loved your presentation. And then I sat down and and read your book, and it just blew me away. I mean, this is like one of the best academic books I've read in a long time. And one of the things that I thought was so fantastic about it was that it's like, it's nominally about United States v. Apple, but it's really about so much more. I mean, it's really about competition policy in America and what we want it to accomplish and why we're doing it in in the first place. And I, and I just want to congratulate you on this accomplishment. Uh, that's very kind. You're making my heart sing. <laughs> so, so in that light, I was hoping we could start by y- y- you just talking to listeners a little bit about what antitrust law is supposed to do. I mean, we know it's supposed to promote competition, but like, what does that mean, right? Do people agree about what it means to promote competition? I mean, what counts as an antitrust violation? What are we trying to accomplish when we do antitrust law? Yeah, yeah. So, so very good questions. Um, uh, and in a sense, um, as, as you know, the, the whole problem in the book is um, all of those questions are easy to answer um, on a very abstract level, but they're much harder to answer in any kind of concrete way. Um, and that poses a lot of problems for, for enforcement of the policy and for sort of its, um, its, its place in our political order. Um, you know, on, on the most general level, yes, it's true. We have this federal law, um, a set of statutes that we know as antitrust law, specifically the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. Um, they're old statutes. Um, they were created, uh, both of them roughly at the same time. It was a time in America in which, um, people were very concerned about, uh, the growth of large businesses and, uh, conduct by some large businesses. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, ever since we've had some sense that, uh, as a consequence of those laws, um, uh, our country has decided to favor competition as a public policy. Uh, the problem is that word competition can mean a lot of different things. Um, and even when you sort of agree on what it's supposed to mean, it's hard to know in any particular case, uh, what's, what's supposed to happen. I mean, the, you know, the cocktail napkin summary of antitrust, uh, uh, antitrust laws that currently exist is that it's a set of rules that, uh, require private businesses to compete with each other. And the details are complex, but the general contours are pretty simple. Basically, the law says uh, private people can't do things to interfere with the ordinary competitive process in markets. And that specifically means that you can't conspire with your competitors as a way to avoid competition. Um, you can't exclude them by doing things to keep out your competition so that you can get a monopoly uh, unilaterally and you can't acquire your competitors. Um, problem is 
you know, even on that relatively simple summary, which I think is, is probably broadly agreed to nowadays, um, uh, knowing how to apply those seemingly simple rules in individual cases, um, is still hard because for example, everyone agrees that some conspiracies, some agreements amongst competitors ought to be prohibited. Uh, and in some cases it's very obvious what ought to be prohibited. So people shouldn't be allowed to agree with their direct competitors that, uh, you know, uh, that they won't compete with each other. They can't agree on what their prices will be. Uh, the problem is it's really easy to come up with real world circumstances in which it's a lot more, it's just more complicated than that. Um, people might agree to uh, agree to their prices in some sense in all kinds of different circumstances. And it's hard to know when they're doing it for good reasons and when they're doing it for bad reasons. Right. Understood. So ultimately, what are we trying to accomplish? I mean, are, is the purpose of antitrust law to promote competition for its own sake or is competition just a means to an end? In other words, you yeah, know, is, the, is the reason we do this like because we want to benefit consumers? Right, right. Excellent question. And and even that, uh, even that statement of it, uh, obviously is is somewhat com- controversial now. Like, are we just trying to protect consumers? Are we just trying to protect, you know, we we the retail sheep of capitalism, or is it something different? Um, I mean, to answer your first question, uh, uh, no, we don't protect competition for its own sake. At least, at least I don't think of it that way, and I don't think many people do. I think everyone has some sense that competition is, is instrumental to other goals. Um, you know, what, what goals specifically we're supposed to be shooting for is, is more complicated. Um, so, uh, there is a sense nowadays that, um, uh, the competition that antitrust protects, uh, at one time used to, uh, strive for more things than it does now. Uh, in other words, there is a sense, particularly amongst, uh, critics of the current sort of antitrust regime that uh, the purposes, the permissible purposes of antitrust have been narrowed. They've been uh, shrunk down uh, Im- improperly and that we ought to use antitrust to accomplish more things. So, you know, the the current sort of mainstream-ish view is at, at least the, the view that's, you know, the consensus amongst the federal courts, for better or worse, um, is that antitrust is uh, serves relatively narrow uh, uh, goals um, of uh, basically just efficiency. Uh, in other words, we're supposed to make markets work well so that uh, uh, prices are low and quality is high and so on. Uh, so in other words, uh, under the current consensus, uh, and I, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not saying that this is, this is good or bad, but the, the general consensus now is something like uh, the purpose of antitrust is to protect the interests and the relatively sort of narrow immediate interests of consumers as consumers. Um, in the history of the law, though, there definitely is reason to believe that at various times, uh, Congress and, and surely a lot of the public that supported the law wanted it to be, uh, to serve much loftier goals. Um, uh, the law at different times was used to, uh, protect the interests of small businesses, sort of protect, uh, the entrepreneurial liberty of small businesses and, and, uh, individual entrepreneurs and also to prevent, uh, accumulations of political power. So, uh, if antitrust, um, really has those goals, we might use it, uh, nowadays to break up big companies 
even though they're doing good for consumers because, for example, they've got too much sway with Congress or uh, they have too much power over workers or or what have you. Right. So just by way of setting up our conversation about the kind of case study of the book, which is United States v. Apple, this kind of really major recent antitrust case, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the history of antitrust, because so, it, it's it's relatively like historically like new in a sense that like you know it, the history of antitrust law is not that long. And I was thinking if you talk about like sort of when and why it was created, mm-hmm. what it was created for, and sort of how maybe it's changed over time to become something different from what it originally looked like. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, in some sense, antitrust is actually very old. Uh, and by that, I mean that um, there are origins uh, for our current federal antitrust law uh, in the common law before Congress created the first federal antitrust statute, which was mm. in 1890. Um, I mean, even even as federal statutes go, the Sherman Act is pretty old. It's 130 years old. Um, the other major antitrust statutes, the the Clayton Act and, and a separate statute called the Federal Trade Commission Act, they're from 1914, so they're a little over 100 years old. Um, but yeah, the the law itself, uh, by which I mean um, the goal of protecting competition for the values that it provides, uh, exists before 1890. And, and depending on how you do your history, it, it stretches back uh, perhaps uh, several centuries before 1890 mm. in, in the English common law. Uh, okay, but all that said, the law that we now know as, as antitrust really did begin, and it, it became importantly different in certain ways um, in 1890. Um, and I, you know, I think you're right to point to history because uh, bo- both American history are quite un- important in understanding uh, our antitrust law, and antitrust law itself has a has a complex, varied history. Um, the, you know, the the context in which the law was created. Uh, everyone agrees is important. And the context was um, the American Industrial Revolution. So um, America was still a predominantly rural, predominantly agricultural economy until, uh, you know, past the mid 19th century. Um, Around the time of the Civil War, uh, larger markets uh, came into being in the United States, partly because transportation and communications um, innovations were making, uh, uh, larger scale production and distribution possible. Um, and that, you know, that is great and all, but it lent itself to the growth of much larger, uh, businesses. Uh, and the businesses not only became large, uh, they also started taking large market shares or or so it appears. So, um, a lot was changing and a lot of people were quite, quite, worried about what was changing. Um, you know, as, as I think, you know, as a a student of American history, there's a long theme in our history of popular, uh, fear, popular, um, apprehension of accumulations of power. Mm. An interesting theme in, in sort of business history is, um, Americans were always afraid uh, or worried or concerned about power. Uh, and I- including power amongst businesses. But until about that time, until the, the last third or so of the 19th century, the concern amongst the people 
was with government granted power. So it wasn't so much that firms were getting big, were becoming monopolies just by um, uh, accumulation of, of lots of power internally, but rather because they were getting special benefits from the government. And so, uh, you know, popular suspicion of business up until about the Civil War was mainly a problem of popular suspicion of government granted benefits to the aristocracy. So the big change in America came to be uh, a shifting of that same concern from government granted benefits to um, benefits that simply accrue to businesses because uh, perhaps the nature of markets has favored the growth of business or because individual businesses have done nasty things to acquire monopolies for themselves. Um, and so suddenly there was a sense that maybe government itself was going to be the solution instead of the problem. And uh, there came to be a lot of popular agitation for government to do something. Um, and the decade or so prior to 1890, was a real ferment of all kinds of different activities um, at both the state and federal levels. Uh, several state governments took action of various kinds. They used their corporation statutes, um, and uh, many of them adopted uh, state-level antitrust statutes before Congress did. Many of them also used uh, common law rules against restraints of trade and so on uh, to try to constrain big business. Um, uh, a lot of that work uh, turned out not to be very effective. Uh, the people sort of felt like something had to be done and all the things that the states were doing and even the federal government's efforts were doing were ineffective. So there came to be a lot of uh, pressure for a serious national level law that would uh, that would uh, be more effective. Uh, and after several tries, we wound up getting the Sherman Act. Um, obviously, I'm gl glossing over a lot of details, but that's basically mm. it. Uh, and you know, yeah, uh, I don't think it's unfair to say, as many people now do, that um, at least the those folks amongst the American public who supported that law really had high hopes for uh, controlling big business and um, uh, using this new tool for for a lot of grand purposes, including keeping businesses from uh, accumulating. Uh, political power and other kinds of inappropriate social influence. Um, <clears throat> the I think it's only fair to say, though, and and this this is in a way um, a criticism of a lot of what we hear nowadays uh, in the in popular debate about antitrust law. Um, <clears throat> what what actually happened during those early decades of the law uh, are probably more complicated than a lot of people now. Um, acknowledge. Uh, and there was, there was a lot of confusion about what the law was for, what it was actually meant to accomplish, what its real, um, end goals were. Uh, and in particular, there was a fair bit of cynicism about why Congress adopted it at all. Um, in, including cynicism about the motives of even the, the sponsors of the law, the initial drafts persons of the law, uh, and there is some sense that um, the law, more than anything, was an effort to sort of give the people something, to make it appear as if Congress was doing something about a problem uh, that many people were concerned about without actually doing anything very effective. And, and that, uh, that criticism has followed the law throughout its entire life. Um, so 
you know, I don't know. I mean, the point of that is just that uh, what happened in those decades, I guess, uh, was complicated. And, you know, the problems that I write about in my book, the the ambivalence that we have sort of lived with uh, about the about the law and we struggle with now uh, have definitely been with it in its whole life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it really seems to me like <clears throat> part of the contemporary story of antitrust law is that there was a kind of normative crusade in the early 20th century to accomplish all of these kind of pro-social goals and that antitrust law was sort of like the white knight of sort of promoting uh, kind of a set of values that people seem to think are important. But it, it seems like antitrust doctrine has changed over the years in a way that, you know, today many people find contentious in terms of thinking about sort of how we should think about what it's for and what it's intended to accomplish. Is 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 that a fair assessment of sort of where things stand today? Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying there's this sense now that antitrust had some very clear purpose early in its history and perhaps for much of its history. Uh, and that that was lost at some point. And um, I, I do think that that is part of a narrative we hear a lot nowadays. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the to the goal, the interest in making antitrust work better. Uh, and I'm definitely sympathetic to the idea that its purposes, uh, its promise have, have been perverted uh, now as well as at other times in, in its history. But uh, you know, the as a matter of history, the the law has been more complicated than than the current story uh, would have it for a long time. Um, in particular, there is uh, a lot of talk right now uh, to the effect that um, antitrust changed really abruptly in the mid nineteen seventies, and that it had an uncomplicated history before that time. Um, it definitely did change abruptly in the mid nineteen seventies, and I, you know, I'm very critical of that too. I think it changed for, for reasons that aren't very pretty, uh, and that were not really the force of ideas so much as, as just raw politics. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the law wasn't, wasn't necessarily different so much in kind as it was different in degree. The law always was, was, uh, an attempt to, um, implement economic theory as uh, a tool for controlling markets. Um, and it always had its uh, its complexities and its ambivalence. Right, right. Okay, so maybe we can move the discussion forward then to talk about the sort of case study in your book, which is U.S. v. Apple, which is, I mean, just such a fascinating story and such a like perfect microcosm of the normative and doctrinal debates like historical normative and doctrinal debates in antitrust law and like such the, a perfect foil for what you're trying to do in the book so like sets the stage for us like what was happening you know like what was at stake in this case why did it come up in the first place what happened yeah okay well that's great and i mean uh th thank you for those those very kind words i mean I agree with you completely that the case, um, the case should be mundane, like on, on every superficial level, it seems like a case that shouldn't be that remarkable. 
but I agree with you that somehow everything about it is amazing and, and philosophically telling. Um, and I've been completely obsessed with it since since the complaint was the complaint was filed six and a half years ago, and I've thought about it every day since. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, what was happening? Um, the conspiracy itself that was challenged in the case was. Uh, on one level of, of mundane price fixing conspiracy, specifically the Justice Department brought an antitrust claim against five of the six uh, major publishers of what are known as trade books. So trade books are general interest books, which could be fiction or nonfiction, but they're published for a general audience. Um, and trade publishing in English at the time was dominated by six big firms. It's now five because two of them have merged. Um, <clears throat> Five of those six firms, according to the government, agreed on the prices that they would charge, uh, not for books, but for electronic books. And they happened to reach that conspiracy with the help and the complicity of the Apple Computer Corporation, which also was a defendant in the case. Um, okay, so how did this how did this ebb? And uh, long story short, the government uh, challenged that as a as a violation of the antitrust laws, succeeded. Uh, pretty much roundly all the way through the courts and secured uh, substantial uh, remedies against the defendants. So, um, you know, you, you hinted at this, but um, the uh, the reason the whole thing was so interesting, and I, I promise I'll get into the details of the case after I say this, but the reason the case was so fascinating to me was that to basically every antitrust lawyer who looked at the case when the complaint was first announced. It seemed easy. It seemed like an easy case. If the, if the government could prove the facts that it alleged, uh, it couldn't lose. Um, and yet to, and most, I think it's fair to say most antitrust lawyers also felt like that would be a good result. Like there isn't really a justification for the, the conduct that the defendants entered into and it, and it should be illegal. Uh, and yet to basically everybody else in the universe, Let's see. Um, the case was at least more complicated than that. It's, it didn't seem so cut and dried. Um, and many people were very, very opposed to um, the government's lawsuit. Um, and most interesting to me uh, above all is that people were opposed to it um, all across the political spectrum, all kinds of people, very, very sophisticated people of good faith uh, and widely varying um, uh, politics. Uh, doubted the case and thought it was a problem. And um, so that seemed to me like that has to be, there's something interesting going on there. Um, interesting too, is that for most people who didn't like this case, regardless what their politics were, or regardless how they explained their, their opposition, um, it all had something to do with the elephant in the room, which was Amazon. The uh, book publishers said, that they needed this conspiracy to protect themselves from Amazon, which was um, eating their lunch, or so they said. Uh, okay, so the the case, like, how did this get started? What was going on? Um, so, uh, prior to two thousand and seven, people had tried many times to invent an electronic book or an electronic reading device uh, and make it commercially viable. Uh, many times, um, <clears throat> uh, but without any success. No one had been able to make any of these products 
uh, Go, a number of major commercial firms produced products and, and tried to sell them and uh, readers just didn't want to use them. And that was that was for various reasons, no doubt. A uh, uh, big problem for a lot of those products was uh, a, a too small a selection of, of titles. Uh, another big problem seemed to be that the technology just wasn't very good. Like the, the screens were were unpleasant to read. The devices were heavy or, or awkward or whatever. Uh, so the first um, product that ever succeeded commercially was um, invented by Amazon. It was the Kindle. And it was released in 2007 um, and uh, was quickly a very big hit. Um, and a few things seemed to contribute to that success. Um, among other things, the, the Kindle did have some new technological advances, um, probably the most important of which was its its screen. So it had this uh, this screen that was a lot easier on the eyeballs and you could you could sort of. Uh, uh, read it more like a book. You swipe the pages to turn the pages. Um, and it was very low battery use and had some other features, but it seems like, um, what really made the Kindle a hit was first of all, it had a very, very large selection of titles in, in the hundreds of thousands, right from, uh, day one. Um, and more importantly yet, no doubt the books were going to be sold at very, very low prices. So, um, uh, Bezos, <clears throat> with a lot of fanfare as, as was his want, uh, announced the Kindle, um, and made a number of public promises to Kindle customers that he would sell, uh, new release books, uh, bestseller, new release books, New York times, bestseller kind of books at nine ninety nine, And he would sell them as eBooks on the day that they were released in hardcover. And how he pulled that off is a, is a story in itself. The, the publishers, uh, you know, he couldn't just do that without their permission, but it turns out they kind of gave him their permission through a series of negotiations in, in which they apparently really did not foresee what was coming. Mm. And they did not, uh, they did not, uh, negotiate very aggressively for their own interests and they were, they were caught unawares. Um, but the bottom line was he announced this product, uh, with the very bad surprise for the publishers that their bread and butter product, their, their new release hardcovers were going to suddenly be competing with, um, with a book, uh, with a, with a version released on the same day at, uh, roughly a third of the price or less. Um, and this was, uh, a huge and bad surprise to the publishing, uh, sector. And they immediately, uh, tried to take action. Um, there ensues a period of a few years, uh, basically about two years in which the publishers, uh, did a number of things. And, um, uh, you know, the things they did included a lot of internal communications, um, um, amongst themselves, uh, publisher to publisher talking to each other, um, about things that we usually expect that businesses wouldn't really talk to each other about like their prices, uh, and like their, <laughs> their relationships with their distributors. <laughs> Those things are normally not freely discussed amongst yeah. because doing it can get you, it can constitute an antitrust violation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that. I hear that, that Adam Smith anticipated that. He did in a famous quote. Right. Um, and mostly, you know, listen, it, uh, the day the complaint was released when the government filed its finally filed its lawsuit, which I believe was in the summer of 2012, 
basically nobody outside the publishing industry knew what was going on. Like it, it had been reported that there was a non-public investigation. Uh, there was also a pending set of private challenges. Uh, and there were, there were details in the press, but nobody really knew what was going on. The day the complaint came out, people were floored. I mean, it's a long fact studied complaint detailing conduct of the kind that you kind of can't believe, um, business in, these are big companies with very sophisticated executives. And we ordinarily expect that they, they just wouldn't do stuff like this. Um, and there's some sense that they may not really have known or weren't thinking very much about the fact that what they were doing was illegal. Um, and that's kind of interesting in itself because the, you know, I mean, one explanation for why fancy business folk might do this sort of thing and think they can get away with it is just because uh, there is a sense that antitrust is is under enforced. Things aren't as dangerous as they used to be. Um, but there is a sense too uh, that publishing is just sort of different. It's not exactly like a business. It's okay if the publishers are more like a uh, you know a collegial body than competitors, something like that. Um, and that that may have something to do with with why they spoke so freely with one another and and made various agreements. But I'll tell you, conduct occurred during that two-year period, the two-year period before they actually agreed to the conspiracy that was ultimately challenged by the government. They did some stuff in that two-year period that looks to me like uh, criminal antitrust conduct. The government didn't challenge any of that stuff, but it was per se illegal horizontal constraints on price and output. Um, Maybe, Chris, could, 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 I mean, could you like just like say what that means, yeah. like in detail? Sure. Okay. So, in under the antitrust laws, and specifically one particular antitrust rule, um, namely Section One of the Sherman Act, you cannot agree <clears throat> with other people to do things that would quote unquote unreasonably restrain trade. Uh, okay. So the most the paradigm trade restraint is the horizontal price fixing conspiracy. So what that means is that if you and a quote unquote horizontal competitor, meaning a person who's selling the same product that you sell to the same customers, if you agree with that horizontal competitor uh, about the price that you will charge or the product that you'll sell or the amount that you'll sell, those things are very plainly illegal uh, those are the most serious violations. They're the kinds of things that are prosecuted criminally. Um, so I use this phrase, uh, per se, illegal. Well, within the law of Section 1, that is, the law of multilateral trade restraints, some conduct is taken to be a more serious violation than other kinds of conduct. And the most serious kinds of conduct are challenged under the so-called per se rule, meaning that the conduct itself is automatically illegal. If the government can show that you did it, uh, there's there's no defense. Uh, um, there, there's plenty of other conduct, by the way, that isn't subject to a rule that that strict. You can be sued for various kinds of conduct uh, and perhaps be liable, but it isn't it isn't per se illegal because we're not so sure that it's it's bad and has no unredeeming qualities. Okay, but we think that horizontal price and output restraints are are unredeemed, and so they are per se illegal. And um, you know, again, within this period of of a couple of years of work 
amongst the publishers to try to deal with their new Amazon problem. Um, they agreed uh, to raise the wholesale price at which they were going to give their eBooks to Amazon. I mean, people go to prison for stuff like that and they, they don't seem to have thought that what they were doing was, was even. So, so, so maybe you could be just even a little bit more specific, like exactly what did they do? Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's, here's the thing. So, all right, before the Kindle comes out, <clears throat> the publishers were definitely aware that there was a possibility that electronic books were going to become a thing. People had been trying to make a commercial go of them for about 20 years and no one had succeeded, but everyone knew it was possible that somebody was going to do it. And there were some promising products at that time, the early 2000s. Uh, some people nowadays still remember a product called the, um, the Rocket Book. Uh, in the early 2000s, the Rocket Book made some, some headway. There was another thing called Soft Book. So the publishers were aware that somebody was going to figure this out sooner or later, um, but they just don't seem to have given very much thought to uh, what was going to happen or what threat it really posed. Um, so along comes Jeff Bezos in uh, 2005 or so, 2006, and he requests that they negotiate digital rights. Uh, and an interesting little fact here is that it appears that prior to that time, um, publishers, um, I mean, you're the expert on these things, so don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I'm, uh, don't, you know, don't, uh, um, kill me if, if this isn't accurate, but, um, I think it was about that time that they first started negotiating digital rights. And in any event, n no one had done any such thing until mm. not long before that. All right. No, people just didn't even think about it, even though digital, reproduction of their works was, was possible. People didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. All right. So fast forward about 2005, Bezos comes along. Uh, he wants to negotiate explicit licenses, allowing him to sell eBooks. The, um, the publishers apparently, again, just, they weren't, they didn't take it that seriously. They didn't think that eBooks were going to become a big thing. They still thought uh, by far the most important rights were their, uh, their rights in hard copy book distribution. Um, and so they gave away their rights to Bezos, apparently without thinking about it too much. And they, the publishers, um, all seemed to offer um, wholesale terms to Bezos that were based on um, on the, the longstanding model by which uh, books were wholesaled, uh, hard copy books um, in the United States, which is and, it, and that was like this. For all of the 20th century, basically, publishers um, gave their hard copy books to distributors on a wholesale basis, meaning they would quote the publisher, uh, the, the distributor, um, a wholesale price. And uh, the, the distributor then would pick its own retail price. Um, the wholesale price was based on uh, a percentage of what the publisher thought was the appropriate resale price. So we basically had an MSRP and the publisher would then take a discount off of that as the wholesale price. And that, that, that discount wholesale price was uniformly 50%. So Bezos could have his hard copy books that he sold on Amazon at 50% off the manufacturer's suggested retail price of the books. Um, in the case of eBooks, the publishers all thought, well, you know, there's some cost savings to us in selling eBooks because there's no inventory. There's no, uh, the, the costs of production are much so lower. 
Um, so much, hope, much, much lower. Yeah, right. Zero. Rough, roughly zero. <laughs> uh, mar- marginal cost anyway, approaching uh, approaching zero. So, um, so yeah. So they just sort of said, well, let's give them a twenty percent discount. And how they came up with twenty percent beats me, but uh, uh, maybe it was by agreement amongst them. And if if that's the case, that was uh, problematic. But in any case, so the wholesale price that Bezos began with was twenty percent uh, off of the standard wholesale price for hard copies. So uh, he was getting the eBooks uh, at a wholesale price of about thirty percent of the uh, the anticipated retail price. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, a small irony there is that um, once things got hot, once uh, once the conspiracy got going, once uh, antitrust litigation arose over this whole thing, uh, the publisher said that, you know, the nine ninety nine price is proof that Bezos was a predatory monopolist. He he was trying to kill his competition. Um, and uh, uh, they, the publishers claimed that because nine ninety nine was actually below his costs. They said uh, he was selling at a loss, and surely no one would do that if they weren't just trying to kill competition and, and get a monopoly. Um, and it, but a, a funny thing, nine ninety nine did wind up being below Bezos's costs um, by the time of the Apple conspiracy, but only because um, after the nine ninety nine price was announced. The publishers all uh, apparently through horizontal agreement, multilateral lateral agreement, decided to stop giving that 20 percent discount. In other words, nine ninety nine was basically his wholesale price. It was his base break even price. Um, uh, so even, you know, um, within antitrust law, we call selling below price uh, predatory pricing. And there was a lot of talk about whether Amazon was a predatory pricer, but it, the price wasn't even literally predatory. When it when it was first introduced, it was uh, it was basically the break even price. But anyway, um, once the publishers realized what was actually happening, they didn't anticipate that Bezos would do this insane thing of selling ebooks on the new release date at such a low price. Um, they then uh, realized very quickly that they needed to take action, um, and they, uh, among other things, they raised the wholesale price. Um, over the course of the ensuing couple of years, they took a number of other actions. Um, they attempted to, uh, engage in a strategy that they called windowing, which was that they, uh, they would approach Bezos and say, look, if you don't, uh, if you don't raise the price of your eBooks, um, we're gonna, we're gonna insist that you not, um, uh, not release them for a certain period after, uh, your, uh, after the the hard copy release, we're going to keep you from killing our hard copy profits for a six month period or or what have you. Uh, they did a few other things, and um, more generally, they simply talked to each other a lot and shared a lot of information of a kind that competitors don't usually do. All right, well, um, the conflict that ultimately ripened into the litigation then happens uh, after a couple of years of this difficult uh, difficulty between. Amazon and the publishers, um, and it kind of uh, kind of came out of the blue. The uh, the publishers uh, didn't know that Apple was coming to rescue them, um, and they didn't ask for it. Uh, but something else happened to be going on during this period, even as the publishers were struggling with with Amazon, and that was that the Apple Computer Corporation was planning to introduce its own sort of revolutionary new product, its own uh, 
uh, category making new innovation. And that was the iPad. Uh, so, um, uh, various companies also had tried to make tablet computers, uh, and had been trying to do it for, for a long time, dating back perhaps to Apple's own, uh, Newton, the, the ill-fated personal data assistant of the the 1990s. Um, so people have been trying to do things like that for a long time. The iPad is the first really successful tablet computer ever. Uh, and, it was slated for launch in 2010. It apparently had been on Apple's mind, uh, on the mind of Steve Jobs in person, as well as a number of other uh, senior Apple executives, that um, Amazon was making a killing with ebooks and with its new Kindle product. And um, it appears to have occurred to Steve Jobs and a senior Apple official uh, who would who would play a big role in liti- the litigation named Eddie Q. Um, it occurred to them that books were something that the iPad could uh, display as well. Uh, and indeed, um, there was sort of a commercial opportunity uh, with with uh, e-books because it was known that the publishers were very angry at uh, Amazon. They were desperate to get out from Amazon's uh, under Amazon's thumb. And so they, they, uh, you know, there was a sense that uh, they would do things for Apple. They would make it worth Apple's while if it could provide them some relief. So an interesting thing, an important fact that would play in the litigation is that um, it's not at all clear that eBooks were even very important to Apple. It seems like they, they basically weren't, um, and the iPad surely would have been released with with or without a bookstore. Um, it probably would have been used or usable to read ebooks in any event, whether Apple included a, any bookstore or not. Um, but it, uh, it it was an opportunity for Apple, uh, perhaps sort of a, a low hanging fruit uh, profit opportunity uh, to get ebooks in. Um, uh, but interestingly. Um, and again, I, I think this is important to the story. Uh, Apple didn't even try to get books onto its new platform until the very last minute. So the iPad was scheduled to launch in February of 2010. Apple didn't even approach the publishers to ask uh, for rights to their books until December of 2009. So basically, a whole you know, electronic, uh, uh, retail store was going to have to be built, uh, and the rights for all of its products negotiated in about two months. Um, so it was like an afterthought. Uh, it seems to have mattered to Apple. It's something they wanted, but it was an afterthought. Um, but anyway, the, the, the events that followed were sort of like legendary brinksmanship. Um, Eddie Q approached, the publishers, again, very, very much out of the blue, in early December of 2009, uh, announced to them that Apple was aware of their problem with Amazon. It wanted to help them, and it thought that uh, you know a deal could be reached that would make it worth their mutual while to distribute books over over the iPad. So uh, the the details get just a little bit hairy. And a lot of people who talk about this case want to want to, you know, they like to really dig into these details and, and fight about what they mean. Um, but really, they're, they're pretty simple. 
Um, and and the, here's the here's the simple story. Apple says to the publishers, $9.99 is killing it. We, Apple, we don't want to sell at $9.99 either. It's not worth our while. So let us work together to find a retail price point that's higher so that Apple can have a desirable share of the profits. You all can get prices up so that the price competition from eBooks isn't killing the business you really care about, which is hard copy new releases, and everybody will be happy. So that that was appealing to the publishers. But here's the big problem. That's not going to work for anybody if Amazon is still out there selling books at $9.99. So this, the problem is everybody's got to get Apple's price. Uh, I'm sorry. They got to get Amazon's prices up too. It's one thing for Apple to say, sure, we'll sell eBooks at $14.99. That'll make you publishers happy, but that doesn't do anybody any good if there's a lower price competitor. So uh, over the course of a few weeks, a deal is hammered out in which the publishers all agree um, that they will let Apple sell their books. Um, they also agreed to change the model a bit, to change the pricing model so that the publishers themselves set the prices. Remember, traditionally, publishers in America had given their books, including ebooks, to distributors at a wholesale, and then the distributor could, could do whatever it wanted. Okay, well, the problem for, for these guys, obviously, is that they couldn't work on that model anymore. They couldn't let Amazon have, um, have freedom to set its prices or this wasn't going to work. Uh, all right. So they all agreed that they would uh, they would take pricing power back for themselves. Uh, more importantly, they agreed to a set of price schedules for their most popular books, their, their new release books that they expected to be best selling books. And the price schedules allowed them flexibility. Um, uh, but as a practical matter, everyone knew and the evidence made very clear that the price schedules were not the the price that would actually be chosen would be the highest possible price within the schedules. Everybody was going to choose the highest price that was permitted under the schedule for the simple reason that the publishers wanted the prices to be even higher yet. And, and they negotiated hard for uh, with Apple for the right to get the prices as high as they could get them. So it was clear that they were all effectively agreeing to a fixed price, um, which happened to be 1499. The books had been sold at nine ninety nine. They basically agreed amongst themselves, uh, the five publishers who entered into the agreement, that the retail price was going to go up to fourteen ninety nine. Um, okay, and then here's the real kicker: <clears throat> they all agreed to fourteen ninety nine. The thing isn't going to work unless they can impose that on Amazon. But you can't have a deal like that under which just one of them imposes the price on Amazon because Amazon would say, go fly a kite. We don't need your books. We'll sell other people's books. Uh, and indeed, um, Amazon had in fact uh, done that uh, and it continued to do it in various in various different circumstances in which it had uh, negotiation impasses with, with various publishers. Amazon could live at least for a while without the books of any one individual publisher. So they couldn't act alone. So here's this, uh, they also realized though, and again, this was, this was acknowledged in, in uh, evidence from internal emails and other communications that was very damaging for the defendants. Uh, they acknowledged that 
um, no one of them could could act alone with Amazon. Uh, they had to act together, but they also acknowledged that they couldn't they couldn't agree multilaterally, uh, and they couldn't tell Amazon that they were acting multilaterally because that would be illegal. Um, so they had to do something that made it look like each one of them individually was just agreeing unilaterally or, or bilaterally with Apple on terms that, uh, they could then impose on, uh, Amazon. Here's how they made sure though, that none of them would cheat. Here's how they made sure that every one of them would follow through and impose their terms on Amazon. And, uh, in a way, this was all very clever because they framed the the contracts in terms that sound very reasonable. They use terms that some people think ought to be uh, given a lot of deference because they seem like they're sort of good business. The publishers agreed in the individual contracts that they negotiated with uh, Apple um, that as an obligation to Apple, they would agree not to allow their books to be sold by any other retailer. That is their electronic books at any price lower than the price that they set on the Apple platform. Uh, okay. So the only other significant ebook retailer at that time was Amazon. So basically all of this complexity boils down to the following simple scenario. Each publisher on paper appeared to have done nothing more than agree to a contract, a bilateral contract between that one publisher and Apple, under which the publisher would set its own prices for eBooks on the Apple platform. And it agreed to this, this term, the so-called most favored nation clause under which it also would ensure that that same price would be imposed uh, on any other retail distributor of eBooks which effectively meant Amazon. Uh, And the practical effect of all of that was you knew that the price that they charged on Apple was going to be the highest price permitted under the contract. Um, And you also knew that everybody was therefore going to impose that price on Amazon. So the practical effect was that the publishers had horizontally agreed amongst themselves because these five individual contracts, by the way, were essentially identical. So they had agreed amongst themselves uh, what the retail price was going to be, not only on Apple, uh, the Apple iBook store, but also on Amazon. Uh, okay, so um, a, a final sort of critical fact running through everything that occurred during that crazy two weeks in Manhattan between Eddie Q and the five publishers is that Q did not just talk to the publishers individually. So, you know, the parties were careful, as as businesses often are. Um, to make sure that the negotiations between Apple and the publishers didn't occur with any of the publishers in the same room together. Q met with each of the publishers individually. All right. That that's important in its own way. Um, and, and, uh, uh, I mean, let me just say why, because of a technical reason within antitrust law, the relationship between Apple and the publishers is not like that critical horizontal relationship that I described earlier. The law takes horizontal relationships very seriously and conspiracies amongst horizontal competitors are thought to be very serious. But Apple was not in a horizontal relationship. Apple was in a relationship that we call vertical because 
instead of actually competing with the publishers by offering its own product in competition with them, it was actually buying their product from them or, or taking it from them and then reselling it to uh, uh, consumers. And the law treats vertical relationships much, much more um, forgivingly than horizontal ones. So as far as uh, superficial appearances uh, might have led one to believe, what happened between Apple and the publishers was just a set of uh, bilateral, purely vertical agreements. Okay, but here's the problem. <clears throat> Eddie Q wasn't just talking to these people individually. He went out and communicated with them in such a way as to assure them constantly that all of them were on the same page. So he would reach uh, reach some sort of uh, agreement in principle with one publisher, and then he would communicate to all of the other publishers the terms that he had reached. And he assured them that everybody would be on the same page by the end. Uh, he agreed with them that nobody would act until a, a critical mass of the publishers had signed on to the same terms. Um, and so even though he Apple was in a vertical relationship with these firms, it was very much the ringmaster of what was very much a horizontal price fixing conspiracy. And in fact, uh, antitrust has dealt with this sort of relationship uh, many times. Antitrust has a special little word for exactly this sort of thing. In antitrust law, this is known as a hub and spoke conspiracy because the ringmaster, the, the Apple firm is like the hub and each of the publishers is on the end of one of its spokes and the hub is coordinating the whole thing. So as far as antitrust is concerned, a firm that acts as the hub is just as liable for a horizontal price fixing conspiracy that it coordinates as the participants in the conspiracy itself. Um, all right. So the, the end result was deal is reached early January, 2010, uh, uh, just very shortly before, uh, the iPad is going to launch. Um, uh, there are a lot more details, uh, to follow. Um, the, the government very quickly learned that there was a conspiracy and it, it would have been difficult to conceal because, Amazon was confronted by several different publishers saying that they all wanted radically different terms and the, the different terms they wanted were all identical. So it was pretty clear what was going on. Um, but even if that hadn't happened, there were some, some really surprising moments uh, that would play um, a, a really important role in the litigation. So, and I'll just tell one story cause I've been rambling forever. Um, at the iPad launch, which was this sort of gala event of the kind for which Apple and Steve Jobs had become famous. Um, Jobs is describing the iPad. Everybody's saying their oohs and their ahs. And um, he introduces the book feature on the iPad. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that's very interesting to people at, in, in that day because uh, by then, you know, the, the Kindle was very popular, it was widely used, it was popular, and it was the only game in town. So people were were pretty captivated that here's this new, you know, this magic new tablet that was highly anticipated, and it was going to compete head-to-head with Kindle on, on books. So Jobs was on stage uh, displaying the screen on his iPad on a huge screen behind him, uh, goes to the iBookstore, he purchases a copy of Ted Kennedy's memoir, uh, which at that time had just come out. 
and he buys it with his own credit card on his own iPad. And he is the first customer in the new iBook store. Thing is, he paid $14.99 for it. <laughs> and, um, you know, the story is now legendary. Um, in the audience was a famous technology correspondent for the Wall Street Journal named Walt Mossberg. And uh, mm. Mossberg speaks to Jobs after uh, uh, the the launch event. Uh, and, um, you know, fun, funny part of the story is that, you know, Mossberg is, is close friends with another prominent uh, tech reporter named uh, Kara Swisher. And they have this sort of adorable little friendship. So she's, uh, she's filming him on her smartphone as he's speaking to Jobs. And he, uh, Mossberg says, you know, what, why is, why are people going to pay $14.99? Why won't they just buy the same book on, on, uh, Amazon for, for $9.99? And Jobs says, oh, the prices will be the same. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, okay. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> After this whole story, it is super clear that this is a per se antitrust conspiracy. So what the hell? Like, why was anyone defending Apple and the booksellers? Yeah, yeah, What's yeah, yeah. going on? Well, okay. So, I mean, you know, listen, don't, don't get me wrong. I, uh, I'm a lot more sympathetic than, uh, than perhaps I've led on to people's, uh, people's frustrations. Um, I, I don't think they're right in the end, but I understand, I understand the difficulty of, of, um, of a case like this. So, um, you know, so people who objected, people who didn't like this case, uh, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, what, what they're mostly concerned about is Amazon. They're concerned about the fact that you've got a great big farm, uh, that has gotten very big, very quickly. Uh, by most accounts, it has done that at least, um, at least through extremely aggressive conduct and perhaps through sort of underhanded conduct. Uh, and there's doesn't seem to be any question that Amazon does in fact want to destroy a lot of things. So, uh, you know, Amazon is, even I think Amazon is the kind of firm that deserves, um, deserves our, our healthy, uh, uh, you know, caution. Uh, and to many people, it seemed like the government suing Amazon, uh, sorry, suing Apple and the publishers under these circumstances was really just a completely perverse, wrongheaded um, mistake in that it was a use of our anti-monopoly law to help the company that in fact was the dangerous monopoly. Um, and that, that mainly was, was the approach from the left, right? I mean, much of the American left really hated this case because it seemed like antitrust was being perverted uh, from its original purposes. And it, oh. Uh, Go ahead. I mean, but, but, but why would the American left want consumers to pay more money for things? I just, it's really hard for me. Well, to understand. I, you know, that's real easy. I mean, I, I'm kind of with you in that I think they're wrong. I think that their instincts will lead to, uh, to bad outcomes. But, um, I mean, for one thing, there's a long tradition in the American left, uh, opposing discount pricers. I mean, uh, Louis Brandeis, who is now something of a hero to much of the, uh, the antitrust left anyway, uh, excoriated discount pricing, um, uh, especially retailers. I mean, discount retailers in Brandeis's day in the early 20th century were, were the great evil, the, the new chain stores that were killing downtown America that were killing mom and pop stores 
uh, they were doing it through low prices. And uh, Brandeis was very explicit in much of his public commentary that prices themselves were the enemy. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't just him that, that same trend, uh, continued for, for decades. We, we have, uh, we have laws on the books even now, uh, not, not very much enforced anymore, but they were adopted to prevent the, the great chain stores of the mid 20th century, um, from killing off competitors who couldn't compete on a price basis. Um, and you know, you, you say why, I mean, why don't we protect consumers from, from, from the, the people who want higher prices? Uh, well, you know, that frankly goes to the question that you and I started this hour with, uh, and that is what exactly is competition? What is the competition we want? Uh, and it, it can mean different things, right? Like you and I are sort of implicitly agreeing that competition basically means price competition. It means fighting for sales by giving people a better deal. But um, it, at different times, including now, various people have thought that competition means something else. It means uh, a numerosity of firms. It means uh, having lots and lots of firms, none of which has a whole lot of power um, competing with each other. Uh, and that, that might be good in different ways. Mm. I mean, I, I can't help but feel in this story that part of the opposition to Amazon and, and part of the defense of what the publishers were doing was driven by a normative story about like values and the values uh, relating to the underlying product. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I guess I wonder like to what extent is that a, a sort of justifying story that has any real teeth. Yeah. I mean, were the publishers producing, are the publishers like kind of producing value mm -hmm. in any meaningful way or are they just dead weight? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. So I, okay. So yeah, I mean, maybe your question is, is it something about books or literature specifically that, that caused people to defend the publishers here? And, and yes. And before I answer that question, let me step back just one second and say an important uh, uh, approach in the book is to address exactly this kind of question, but to address it in the following way. I say in the book, look, the publishers and their defenders in the public, they actually had a whole series of specific reasons for why they needed an agreement um, that, as far as antitrust concerns is concerned, um, looks bad. They had a, a series of agreements that all basically boiled down to various uh, various specific arguments for why the circumstances of this particular case were special. Uh, so even if price competition, the sort of rigorous, you know, competition for sales over price and quality, which is sort of the modern consensus definition of, of competition, um, even if that's a good policy to have most of the time, there, there were various reasons advanced for why this particular case was special. And so we ought to give the publishers protection from that kind of competition, because after all, uh, Amazon wasn't, uh, wasn't holding the gun to anybody's head. The only way that it was getting sales was by selling, uh, selling the product at lower prices or giving people better consumer service. So, you know, when you're a defendant trying to, uh, trying to defend yourself against that kind of competition by doing something other than meeting it on a price, you know, meeting that competition on a price basis, 
you have to have an explanation for why uh, price competition under these circumstances isn't as good as it is uh, anywhere else. So in the book, I say, you know, those things are interesting. And surely we can all find some sympathy for the fact that literature and books and so on um, at least seem like they must be different or they could be different than perhaps other businesses. But the more I thought about it, the more I tried to work through these various arguments, the more it seemed to me like these are actually a list. The, all, these arguments all come from a relatively short list of the same kind of arguments that all kinds of businesses have raised. Every defendant has raised in every antitrust case since time immemorial. They all believe that their their markets are special. And that's true even when their products are extremely mundane. Every defendant has an interest in in trying to argue that they should be protected from competition a little bit. So in the book, I try to, I mean, that's interesting in itself, if you ask me. There's a small set of reasons that people say competition is is bad in particular cases. Uh, and yeah. it, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying, like, one thing that struck me as particularly bizarre about this particular circumstance is that the publishers are fighting so hard under these circumstances, and yet in other media, we're seeing the same thing happen, and it's actually producing lots of value in a way that people, you know, think is good. I mean, Amazon doesn't just do books. I mean, it does movies now, and so does Netflix, yeah. right? And those are like those are much more expensive than producing books, and yet the quality and the value is at least equivalent, if not better than the competing kind of legacy yeah, right. producers in the sphere. I mean, if I, I, I guess it's hard for me to understand, like if Amazon is just better at doing this intermediation job than the publishers are, then who cares if the publishers go out of business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm with you. I mean, uh, um, you know, you, you and I are both going to start sounding a little bit like Robert Bork and I, I really don't, I really don't intend that, but, but here's the thing. It's like, all right, taking the arguments as, as they come. I mean, so the publishers said various things. They said, well, if we're exposed to price competition of this kind of vigor, uh, perhaps we will go out of business. Also, maybe there won't be enough of, uh, there won't be enough of return in writing to keep good authors producing great literature. Um, f- various other problems are, are allegedly going to happen. Uh, you know, um, there are harms to all kinds of social values. Small bookstores are gone or so. So the, the story has been Tur- turns out that isn't actually as true as, as we thought it was going to be. Um, but surely a lot of damage was done to independent bookstores. Even the big chain bookstores have suffered a lot. Um, there's been some fear that the paper book itself would go away. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. I, I really like books. I don't, I don't like the iPad. I don't particularly like eBooks. Um, and, and so if the paper book went away, you know, I'd, I'd be very sad. So, uh, you know, what about that? So, you know, in the book, I try to take those arguments as they come. Um, it, to me, they seem like they're not even very persuasive, uh, on their own terms with respect to books. And they also turn out to be, even though they seem special, you know, books seem like they simply must be a special product. And yet it turns out the argument pretty much works out the same for books as it does, as it does in other markets. Um, generally speaking, I, I agree with you. Like 
more competitiveness usually means uh, 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 better products and the things that people want are in fact preserved. A lot of times it means that um, things have to change. They have to adapt. So the publishers might have to really adapt. Bookstores might have to adapt. We might have to get used to reading electronic books or, or at least using some kinds of, of electronic media in addition to, to books. But um, things have a way of, of working themselves out and they tend to work better when we let competition work it out than when we let um, firms like these publishers um, agree. Well, and it seems like a lot of the concern is sort of this weird kind of crocodile tears about what's going to happen to authors. But it seems like, you know, I mean, this is one of these weird markets where we actually have like basically an antitrust exemption to authors where they can charge super competitive prices for what they produce and they, the government says it's fine. I mean, I wonder whether this might, might not actually be better for authors. Yeah, so I mean, it seems like <laughs> Amazon has been great for a lot of authors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, as, as you know, I, yeah, I mean, so, so two things here. I mean, first of all, I couldn't agree more that a very misleading theme throughout the ebooks case, <clears throat> just as often happens uh, whenever there's some sort of dispute between the content owners, the rights holders to some sort of media product and a new technology or a new competitive seller. In those cases, it's very easy for incumbent producers to say that they're looking out for the interests of the artists. They're really just trying to protect the art or whatever. Um, but you know, the, the rights holders are primarily the big companies that are producing the product, um, and have bought the product from the artists and they don't have any interest at all in making the artists lives better. So, you know, the idea that the, the five of the six biggest publishing firms in the world, which are all subsidiaries of massive media conglomerates, were entering into this price fixing conspiracy because they wanted to give more money to authors is, is facially ludicrous. Um, so, you know, a, a big problem in this case was defenders of the publishers, which again included a lot of the American left, found it easy to say that they were looking out for the little guy. Uh, they were trying to protect authors from the, the, monopolist Amazon. Um, but you know, there's no sense in which the publishers were going to benefit the authors more after they'd had a successful price fixing conspiracy. What, what, whether Amazon is, is better for them or not, who knows? I mean, um, that, that, that story is still being written. Um, but you know, another phenomenon that has, that has been observed in quite a lot of, of, uh, technological disputes in, in, um, media uh, has been that there's a whole lot of fear surrounding some new innovation, particularly if it's very price competitive. No, everybody's going to lose their shirt. And then once the dust settles, the technology kicks in, distribution gets better. People get more of what they want. The rights holders actually make more money. Uh, and that, that is actually working itself out in eBooks. Uh, the publishers found that um, when, <laughs> when prices were lower, uh, they actually made more money overall, uh, in part because they made a lot on on volume sales and ebooks. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Chris, this has been a great conversation, and I feel like I can't 
conclude it without asking you about the irony of writing a book that's going to be published that's like deeply critical of the entire publishing industry and sort of what that experience was like and and what your publisher said to you well so this is yeah this is such a good question um so i mean i think i you know i didn't try to sell this book to any commercial but i initially i was like you know this is this is a great human interest story and this book could be told like there's a lot of sort of swashbuckling facts surrounding the conspiracy itself and the you know the secret negotiations with eddie q and so on and so i thought you know this could be like um, a civil action. It could be like the, you know, the great page turners of, of legal storytelling. And so maybe there's a commercial audience like me, but then it dawned on me, all the commercial publishers were defendants. Like I'm not going to sell this book to them. Um, so I, I didn't even really try. I, I, and also, you know, I ultimately I'm, I'm an academic. I wanted to tell a story about policy and that it, it was going to be a more intellectual book. So, uh, kind of, uh, you know, it, it was only going to be sold to an academic press anyway. Um, and so that's a little easier, but I definitely worried about it. I mean, uh, you know, people in academic publishing, in my experience, uh, they are very much book people. Uh, they find themselves in a lot of kinship with, uh, with people at the big trade publishers, uh, and, and everybody else in, in publishing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I got a little pushback here and there. Um, I will say, um, most book people to their credit, they, um, it's easy, you know, like oh, you're an IP guy, you're a, you're a copyright guy. It's when you do that, it's it's easy to be very cynical about these kind of businesses. Like they're, you know, they claim to be serving the art, but they're really just sort of grubbing money. Um, but in their defense, I, you know, I find most book people to be actually pretty serious and and they're open minded and they absolutely do love their institutions and they care about them. So for the most part, I I've actually been received pretty well. Um. You know, the first time I ever spoke about this book, uh, or this this lawsuit rather, long before it was a book, um, was at a conference in New York City, um, <clears throat> right after the complaint had been filed, and people were really talking about it. And the conference was mostly book industry people; it was mostly Manhattan publishing people. And you know, I'm speaking about it, and I I was new to the case at that time, and I am definitely an, a generalist. I'm not a publishing specialist or anything like that. I'm an antitrust generalist. And, you know, I felt pretty weird, um, just this old antitrust lawyer going to tell these people that uh, their problems weren't really special and their product wasn't special and, yeah. and they deserve and you to. Are, and you are definitely going to lose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, they, they, uh, they welcomed me actually uh, pr- pretty, pretty open with pretty open arms. And I found also a lot of people in that crowd who were, were book industry people, but who also thought that the publishers were wrong. Um, like there's a lot of conscientious concern amongst literary people about the direction that the industry has taken. It's, it's a pretty ugly direction in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, the business, the you know, the books are edited by literary people, but the businesses are run by MBAs. And, uh, there are a lot of people who, who worry about that a lot and, uh, they were pretty receptive. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I tell this story in the book at, at that conference, you know, I thought things were going great. People were asking me good questions. I got through it and I thought I was going to get out alive. And then, um, uh, a person stood up who happened to be a publishing executive. And, and she said, uh, she said that her boss was one of the individual defendants who actually reached the conspiracy. And she was, 
she was outraged. She she thought that anyone describing what had been done as a as a conspiracy or a cartel was just was just an outrage. Um, and I I did not. T- I bit my tongue. I didn't say. <laughs> I didn't say. You're a better man than me. Well, Chris. I didn't say your boss is lucky that he's not in prison. <laughs> oh my! Oh my! Oh my! Oh my! Well, thank you so much. This has been like an incredibly great conversation. And like I said, I mean, the book is fantastic and I can't wait to see it hit the presses as it were. your customers straight in the eye so don't forget what we're talking about just do your homework remove any doubt be well informed and starting to shout think big think ibm think big think ibm you're bound to sell that system every time if you're thinking big 